Let's pray together. Lord, that is our prayer this evening. I am listening, Lord, for thee. Master, speak. Oh, speak to me. We pray this for your glory. Amen. It's almost time for the action to begin at the All England Lawn Tennis and Croquet Club, or as you might know it better, Wimbledon. Come the 3rd of July, the Robinson's juice will be flowing, the strawberries and cream will be eaten, and the competitors will be grunting as they serve and return the tennis ball at speeds of up to 148 miles per hour. I wouldn't like to be on the other side trying to return that. But the thing I like best about watching tennis is watching the crowd as they watch the tennis. You know the people sitting on on the sidelines and they're back and forth from one side to the other as they follow the ball. Well, in some ways, the book of Habakkuk is a bit like a tennis match. Habakkuk serves a challenge and God replies. Habakkuk gets it back over the net and all eyes are on God to see if he'll respond again, to see if he'll be able to get it over the net. And that's where we left the action last week, if you remember, if you were with us. With Habakkuk's waiting in verse 1 in chapter 2. And perhaps if you've closed your Bible, uh, you could open it again to page 941 where you'll find Habakkuk chapter 2. In verse 1, Habakkuk says, I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me. And what answer I am to give to this complaint. But if you were with us last week, you'll know that this exchange, this back and forth, is more important than a game of tennis. Even more important than the Wimbledon final. Habakkuk is trying to understand how God works in the world. He's trying to get his head around the way that God fulfills his purposes because for Habakkuk he just can't get it he can't understand what's going on his first complaint was that God didn't seem to be doing anything about the wrongdoing in his nation so then God replied and told him what he was going to do do you remember the amazing unthought of That wonderful thing that God was going to do. He was going to bring the feared Babylonians to punish Israel. Habakkuk responded with his second complaint. I can't believe you're going to do that God. That Babylon is even worse than Israel. How could could Babylon destroy Israel? How could God allow such a thing? I wonder if you've been pondering the same question over this past week. Perhaps you've been uh, thinking back 
over your life and struggling to work out what God was doing and why he allowed some things to happen. Or maybe you're in the thick of it right now. You feel as if the the, the Babylonians have come over the hill, have invaded. You're suffering and you're trying to make sense of it all. It's particularly hard if you're a Christian. And you think, well, surely God should be for me. And surely when I became a Christian, everything is, is good. But the Christian life isn't always like that, as I hope you've realized by now. So what is God's answer? How does God respond to this second complaint of Habakkuk? Well, that's what we'll see tonight. And the first part of the response is there in verses 2 and 3. Habakkuk is told to write down the revelation. To make it plain on tablets. Now, that's not an iPad. So it's not. And it's not the wee pills that you might take in the morning. Or three times a day. But big stone tablets so that a herald may run with it so that someone can read it and then go and tell other people the same message do you remember um, not the most recent election, I know we've had quite a few uh, but the general election before when Ed Miliband the um, Labour leader at the time unveiled his what the press called his Ed Stone Uh, And he had certain pledges that the Labour Party were going to do if they were elected. And um, everyone just, uh, well, it was his downfall. Because people didn't believe him. And this headstone became his headstone of his political career. But this is a message to be written down. To be remembered. To be passed on. To be spread. And why is that? Well God says in verse 3. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. There's the promise that this revelation will happen God has the day fixed in his diary it's marked on his calendar even if he doesn't tell us when it's going to happen God says that it will happen and that should be enough and even though there might be those hard days and difficult days between now and then days that might make you doubt If things will change. Days that make you doubt if it's really true. That day will come. God says it. So it will happen. Now what is the day that he is talking about? What is the revelation promising? Well before we get there. God points us to someone called he. In verse 4, 
see he is puffed up, his desires are not upright. Indeed, wine betrays him, he is arrogant and never at rest. Because he is as greedy as the grave and like death is never satisfied, he gathers to himself all the nations and takes captive all the peoples. Now who is this he? Who is it that God is talking about here? Well, it's the Babylonian, it's, it's the enemy, it's the oppressor. Puffed up, proud, his desires are not upright. And so on. Even though Habakkuk doesn't really want to look at him, doesn't want to think about him, God shows him the one who is coming, the terror who is coming. Now is that the day that God is talking about? The day that the Babylonians come and destroy everything? Well, that day might be fixed in God's calendar, but it isn't the one that God is telling Habakkuk about. But in order to grasp the importance of that day and, and the distinction that will come, Habakkuk first needs to see the ugliness of the unrighteous. And then he needs to see the contrast with the righteous. I wonder, did you notice the little bit of verse 4 that I skipped over when I was reading it a moment ago? It wasn't that my eye jumped, it wasn't that I am a poor reader. Um, But look at verse 4 again. See, he is puffed up, his desires are not upright, but the righteous will live by his faith. Slipped into the middle of that bit about the Babylonians is the contrast. The one who is righteous. And what makes them righteous? What makes them right with God? Is it how much they give? Is it how good they are? Well, no. The righteous will live by his faith. Believing in God. Trusting in him. Even when things look really bad. Not working for our own goodness. But simply receiving the promised blessing of God. It was this verse quoted at the end of our second reading in Romans chapter 1. That led a guilt ridden, frustrated, despairing monk. To discover again the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Which led to him beginning the Reformation 500 years ago this year. Martin Luther. And it is the righteous who will live by faith when the Babylonian invasion comes. This is what God tells Habakkuk. This is the revelation to be written down and treasured. As the song puts it, don't stop believing. In the hard days, when God seems to be absent or uh, impotent, keep on believing. 
It's only as we live by faith that we can keep looking forward to the promised end at the day that God says is coming. And in that day, God says that the peoples will taunt Babylon. Look again at the end of verse 5. It says, He gathers to himself all the nations and takes captive all the peoples. Will not all of them taunt him with ridicule and scorn, saying, God says that the Babylonians might win the battle, might win on this day, but he won't have the ultimate victory. That the captured peoples will get their own back. That the conqueror will be conquered. There will be scorn and ridicule in this series of five woes. Now that's woe as in a terrible thing has happened and not what you say to a horse to get it to stop. Woe! Woe. And five woes are coming on the Babylonian. Woe number one. Verse six. Woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. The Babylonians had become rich by stealing and extorting. But God says that the burglars will be burgled. Verse 8. Because you have plundered many nations, the peoples who are left will plunder you. You see, they, they might have... Uh, become rich but they're not going to get away with it in the end they're going to become as poor as the people that they have attacked woe number two verse nine woe to him who builds his realm by unjust gain to set his nest on high to escape the clutches of ruin In trying to protect himself by ruining others, he will actually ruin himself. Verse 10 says, you have plotted the ruin of many peoples, shaming your own house and forfeiting your life. Woe 3, verse 12. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by crime. You see, they've worked hard to build their city and establish their town, even if they've done it by bloodshed and by crime. But God says that it's all ultimately pointless. For nothing. Look at verse 13. Has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labour is only fuel for the fire? That the nations exhaust themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. 
You see, the, the Babylonians, in the very same place of the original Tower of Babel, the Babylonians were trying to make a name for themselves, trying to establish their glory as they conquered all around them and became the nation on earth. But suddenly into these woes comes something different. A declaration of God's glory. The nations are for nothing For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. On that day, the day that we look forward to, the glory of the Lord will be seen and known everywhere by everyone. This is the day we long for. This is the day we look forward to by faith. Even when the glory of the nations and people seem to overshadow God's glory at the moment. Back to the woes. Verse 15, woe number four. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbours. Babylon is pictured as one who makes his neighbours drunk in order to gaze on their naked body. But God says what goes around comes around. Now it is your turn. God says in verse 16. Drink and be exposed. Because the cup from the Lord's right hand is coming around to you. And disgrace will cover your glory. This cup is a picture in the Old Testament several times. Of God's judgment. It's the cup that. In the garden of Gethsemane. As the Lord Jesus prayed. To the father. He says. If there's any way this cup can pass from me. But not my will be done. This cup of. The Lord's wrath was coming to Babylon. It had to drink. And then, finally, woe number five. But you might notice as you look at verses 18 and 19 that this woe is slightly different. All the other woes, woe came at the start of them. In verse 6, in verse 9, in verse 12, in verse 15. But here there's something before the woe. All the other sins were bad and the woes were terrible. But it's as if this one is the worst. And it addresses the theme of idolatry. Verse 18. Of what value is an idol since a man has carved it? Or an image that teaches lies? For he who makes it trusts in his own creation. He makes idols that cannot speak. And then we have the woe, woe to him who says to wood, come to life, or to lifeless stone, wake up. The man might trust 
in his idol. He might even have faith in it. But it's not just having faith that is enough. It is trusting in the right object of faith. It's only trusting in the truly trustworthy one that really counts. See, there's no point saying, well, I have faith in something or someone. That'll only work if the one you put your faith in is truly trustworthy. Idols made in our own image cannot save. That's true whether it's an idol made of wood or a modern day idol of home or family or work or whatever it might be. But we're called to faith. Faith in the true God. And in the last verse we get a glimpse of our great God. Look at it with me. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. This is the God who speaks. The God who rules. The God who has set a day to deal with the wicked. The God who calls us to live by faith in him. And the God before whom we will be rendered speechless. It's good to ask questions. It's good to try to understand what God is doing in the world. But there is a time to be silent. To stop interrogating God and always wanting an answer and simply to to be silent to trust what he has said to trust what he has ordered and to get on with it to live by faith Trusting that God knows what he's doing and will complete all his purposes. That that evil will not have the final word. And while it may have the upper hand today or tomorrow, that God is in control. Habakkuk calls us to live by faith. Will we do that this week? Will we walk in the path that God has called for us as we hold to his word, as we worship him, and even as we're silent before him? Let's pray.
The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Lord, we long for this day when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of your glory as the waters cover the sea. Help us, Lord, to live by faith in you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.